Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings, which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth, who spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall be seated. And they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under their whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. The Bible speaks of a world leader who will come on the scene at the end of human history. And he has been called the Antichrist. By the way, that name, Antichrist, only appears in the little epistles of First and Second John. Antichrist means more than just simply that being which stands in opposition to Christ, but it can also mean that being that serves as a substitute for Christ. And so throughout the New Testament, Antichrist is always viewed not simply in terms of the persona that will come and be the end-time world leader, but it stands for each man, each woman, each false system of philosophy that stands in opposition to the things of God and the things of Christ. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul wrote in verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day shall come, except there come a falling away first. That man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition. And so for generations, students of the Bible have attempted to try and figure out who is this Antichrist. Early church candidates included Judas and Caligula and Nero and every Roman emperor after Nero and then every pope. And then in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church thought Martin Luther was the Antichrist. Then in the 1600s, they thought Oliver Cromwell was the Antichrist. In the 1900s, Hitler, John F. Kennedy, Henry Kissinger, and Prince Charles have all been candidates to be the Antichrist. My own favorite, David Hasselhoff. The reason why David Hasselhoff is my favorite candidate is because, again, when you stop and you think about it, how can a person with even less musical talent than John Tesh, his television shows are unwatchable, but how do you account for the fact that he's one of the most popular stars? And one person wrote, I submit that David Hasselhoff is the Antichrist, and this is the proof that he offered. There's only one way to ex explain his global success of the country's least talented person. Explanation number one, he is in fact talented, but the, his talent goes unnoticed in our country. Number two, he sold his soul to Satan in return for global success. Number three... He is the Antichrist. And he says, the facts are obvious. If you paint little horns and a mustache and a beard on him, he looks exactly like the devil. Also, if you take his name, David Hasselhoff, and rearrange the letters, it spells out fad of devil's hash. What does that mean? Well, maybe Baywatch is David's fad. David is the devil, and the hash is what makes Knight Rider popular in Amsterdam. I was actually hoping to make the letters in his name spell out, he is of the devil, which could be possible if his middle name is Ephesus, which it might be. If it was his middle name, he would certainly hide it. And who is the beast? Well, of course, David Hasselhoff. His heads are the separate television incarnations. I stood upon the sand of the sea, and behold, a beast rises up having seven heads and ten horns. And you see in Baywatch, he comes running out of the ocean. His separate television incarnations are the heads, Young and the Restless, Revenge of the Cheerleaders, Knight Rider, Terror at London Bridge, Ring of the Musketeers, Baywatch, and of course, the unforgettable Baywatch Nights. The ten horns represent his musical album, Crazy for You, David and David Hasselhoff, and Do You Love Me? Now, of course, you read something like that and you go, that's stupid. And that's exactly right. Intimations of who the Antichrist might be has gone from the very serious to the very sublime. We're told in Revelation 13, 18, that the number of the Antichrist of his name is six and six and six. But yet no one knows the meaning of that statement. David Jeremiah writes, people have tried to figure out who the Antichrist is by playing a numbers game. The fun thing is that anyone can be the Antichrist if you do it right. You only have to follow three simple rules. One, if the proper name doesn't work, add a title. And that's exactly what they did with Nero. 
Number two, if it doesn't work in English, try Hebrew. If it doesn't work in Hebrew, try Greek. If it doesn't work in Greek, try Latin. Three, if none of those things work, cheat on the spelling. Whoever he is, the coming Antichrist, will, in a very real way, reflect Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. In John's revelation in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, it says, And I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. He had seven heads and ten horns, and his ten horns were ten crowns, and upon those crowns were the names of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and his authority. And the book of Revelation, it recreates what we've already seen in Daniel chapter 7. The lion is Babylon. The bear are the Medes and the Persians. The leopard, Greece. And the unspeakable monster, the Roman Empire, the collapse of that empire, and the reconfiguration of that empire. And we learn that he will be a charismatic leader. And he will be a cultic leader and a clever leader. He will change the times, he will change the laws, and he will do great things. And in verse 15 it says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the vision of my head troubled me. He's, of course, referring to the first part of the chapter, in which we've already looked at the dream and the meaning of those beasts. And Daniel uses an extremely interesting expression in that That text, he says, I was grieved in my spirit, within my body. By the way, in the original language, the word body can also be translated sheath. In other words, it's the idea that Daniel is drawing a distinction between the spirit and the body, that the the spirit is wholly different from the body, and like a sword in a sheath, so the spirit is in the body. And the Bible speaks of human beings as a spirit and as a soul and as a body. When you live in a culture and when you live in a world that takes away God, when you jettison God from your thinking and from your living, you will invariably replace God with something else. And people who reject God invariably replace God with themselves or facsimile. A culture that rejects God will accept man as God. And the culture that rejects God and then accepts man as God will then substitute the spirit for the soul and then the soul for the body. And so that pleasure becomes what is most important and satisfaction of self. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Bible makes it abundant abundantly clear you are more than your body. You do have a soul. You do have a spirit. 
You have an eternal soul and an eternal spirit that was created by God and that was meant to last forever. And Daniel's overwhelmed by the visions and the revelations. He's burdened by them. He's anxious to know their meaning. And in verse 16, look what it says. I came near to one of those who stood by. And apparently this is an angelic being. And asked him the truth of all this. Note that and underline it. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation and their meaning or the interpretation of these things. Now, the reason why this becomes important to you is because Daniel wants to know the truth. Daniel desires to know the truth, not opinion, truth, not supposition, truth. Not assumption. Truth. And sometimes people are willing to speculate about things that they know nothing about. I read that Darwin's origin of the species contains the phrase assume or suppose 800 times. His ideas and conclusions are based on several unprovable premises and false conclusions. And so when you're talking about the difference between supposition and assumption and truth, it's the difference between that which can be concretely known and only that which can be speculated about. So here is the deal. You can know with certainty that which God has revealed. And you can know with less than certainty that which God has chosen to conceal. But if you forget anything else that I say tonight, I hope you remember this. The revelation that God gives to Daniel is true. I'm going to bring out an important point right now that is going to be one of the most important points that we have to say tonight. Daniel was exactly right about the emergence of Babylon and the fall of Babylon. He was exactly right about the emergence of the Medes and the Persians and the fall of the Medes and the Persians. He was exactly right about the emergence of Greece, the division of Greece, the collapse of Greece. He was exactly right about Rome, the emergence of Rome, and the fall and and the eventual disintegration of Rome. And if he was right about everything in the past, rest assured he will be right about everything in the future. And look at verse 18. Excuse me, verse 17. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which arise out of the earth. And we've already seen who those kings are. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander, Julius Caesar. The beasts are kings, and they are earthly kingdoms. And remember, the vision of the beasts are the kingdoms of human beings from God's perspective. In other words, remember at the beginning of of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a statue of humanity with a head of gold and a chest of silver and a belly of bronze and legs of iron. And he pointed out that that might be human civilization from man's perspective, but from God's perspective, they are beasts, tearing, devouring, consuming one another. And by the way, it's it's interesting to me that the symbols of these human 
kingdoms are animals, birds of prey, predators. Even in our own time, what's the national bird for the United States of America? It's the bald eagle. You know what it was in the beginning? Benjamin Franklin suggested that it be the wild turkey. Yeah, that's scary. We think about the British lion, the Russian bear, the Chinese dragon. Animals fight to protect their own. Animals fight at any cost. Animals can be suddenly provoked. Animals will kill for treasure. Animals will kill for pleasure. Animals will kill for territory. But one day the kingdoms of human beings will become the kingdom of the saints. And then all of a sudden in verse 18 you find one of the most important passages in the whole chapter where it says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And that particular passage becomes so important because as you see the kingdoms of human beings rise, it can get discouraging. It can get intimidating. If you were a person who lived in the time of Greece and in the time of Rome, if you were a person who was living in a collapsing German circumstance, if you are a person who, who survived the Depression and you look at the chaos around the world, you might come to the conclusion that God isn't in control. But all of a sudden, Daniel is reminded that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. That God is in control. That when you pray the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. And that that kingdom will be established forever and ever and ever. Make no mistake about it. That even though civilization seems to go in a circle, in a downward spiral, getting worse and worse, the reality is that there is a God. And God will establish His kingdom. And the saints will... Inherit that kingdom. The point? For many people, as they look out over the landscape of humanity, they might come to the conclusion that God's plan has failed. And they would be incorrect. And so Daniel is comforted and reassured that the saints will, in fact, possess the kingdom forever and ever. And before that kingdom comes, Daniel's given a terrifying vision. A picture of the Antichrist. A picture of the final kingdom. And look at verse 19. It says, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. We've already seen that that fourth beast has both a future manifestation and a far future manifestation when Daniel wrote these words. When Daniel wrote these words, it was a picture of a coming Roman Empire. That the Roman Republic would collapse. Julius Caesar would become the, the, the emperor. His nephew Augustus would take the throne. And it was in the time of Augustus that Jesus Christ, the real Messiah, would be born. And we're going to find out more about that in Daniel chapter 9. 
But as the kingdom emerges and spreads around the Mediterranean rim and extends itself from east to west, then it begins to disintegrate over a period of some 600 years. And like I said, unlike the other kingdoms, the Roman Empire was not conquered from without, but it failed from within and it collapsed under the decay of its own moral depravity. And then the European states formed separate entities. And then in verse 20 it says, And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before, which three fell, namely that horn, it had eyes and a mouth. It spoke pompous words whose appearance was, in the old King James it says, more stout than his fellows. In the new King James it says, greater than his fellows. And so the ten horns emerge. Different people have speculated, what is that? Ten powers, ten kingdoms, ten regions. We're not told, but then another horn comes up. So are there ten or are there eleven? Ten plus one equals eleven. So we see something remarkable. Are there ten kingdoms or are there eleven? Whoever this Antichrist fellow is, and we believe it is a fellow, see, he has eyes and a mouth. And remember what I told you, that eyes in the Bible speak of human recognition. The eyes in the Bible speak of a, something that is intelligent and sentient and knows and sees, and it has a mouth which speaks pompous words. And for years, Bible scholars have indicated that these horns may be representations of a restored European Union. And over the last several decades, we have seen, and centuries, we have seen Europe shift and mold and shape. We've seen countries like France and Spain and Portugal. We've seen countries like Italy and Switzerland to the north. We've seen Greece. But the shifting and the shaping of the European continent has been in constant flux. And what those final ten kingdoms will look like, we still don't know. If it's true that the ten horns are representations of a European Union, then whatever that union is, this Antichrist comes from somewhere out of that union. However, if the horns come from a revived Roman Empire, the nation could include any of the nations that used to occupy the former Roman Empire. That could be Greece. It could be Turkey. It could be Lebanon. It could be Israel. It could be North Africa. It could be Spain. It could be England. We're not told. We are led to believe that whatever this final configuration is, it devours the whole planet Earth. That means sovereign borders disappear. And so for some Bible scholars, we're left with the concept that the Antichrist could quite literally come from anywhere. Other people have speculated that the Antichrist seems to contain some of the attributes of all of the former kingdoms. There's an aspect of Babylonian in him. There's an aspect of Greek in him. There's an aspect of Roman in him. Is it possible that the candidate could be biracial or even multiracial? 
We're not told. But we are told that the Antichrist's appearance is greater than his fellows. The implication being, whoever he is and whatever he is, he is more wicked, he is more willful than any of his predecessors. I want you to imagine the most wicked human being that you can conceive in your mind. There's several candidates that come to my mind. Caligula, who was a vicious beast. Nero, who took Christians and impaled them and covered them with pitch and lit them on fire. He wrapped them in animal skins and, and threw them to wild beasts. Antiochus Epiphanes, who outlawed Sabbath-keeping, who wrapped a woman who dared to bear her child and have her child circumcised. She cut the child's throat, hung the child around its mother's head by its umbilical cord, and then slaughtered all of her children right in front of her eyes. He caught a group of Jews practicing and worshiping God in a cave, and he covered the cave and lit it on fire and suffocated everyone in the entryway. This person will be more wicked than Caligula, more wicked than Antiochus Epiphanes, more wicked than Nero, more wicked than Hitler, more wicked than Stalin, more wicked than Pol Pot. How is that possible? Because this will be a person who will have no moral restraints whatsoever. And in verse 21, look what it says. I was watching. And the same horn was making war against the saints. And prevailing against them. The same horn is again the Antichrist. He wages war against the saints. Who are the saints here, do you suppose? Three possibilities. The saints in this context by Daniel, when Daniel wrote this, you know who he had in mind? The people of God, the covenant community. When Daniel was writing these words, he was thinking of the saints as the Jews. It could very well be that the saints are those people of God. Are the saints the Jewish people? Are the saints the believers in a far future kingdom? We're not told. Minimum, we're left with the impression that these are the people who have entered into the relationship and with God in the Old Testament covenant. And I'm going to remind you of something that when we make our way through Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, when the prophecy is given concerning the coming of the Messiah, it says these prophecies are determined on your people. Clearly, that's the Jewish people. And he's able to make war and to prevail against them. He wages war against the saints. There's a hellish hatred for the saints. The Antichrist will deny Christ. 
will oppose Christ and then wage war against that which Christ honors and values and loves and finds sacred and important. And over and over again, I've said to you that God has a plan and a purpose for the people of the earth, but he also has a plan and a purpose for the Jewish people. The Bible uses the expression and prevails. In the original language, it's, it's a very interesting word. It's a word that carries with it the connotation of wearing something out till it's no longer functional. You know, I grew up the oldest of five children. And the advantage of being the oldest of five children is I got all the new stuff. And then I handed it down to my brother, who was born 12 months after me, who hands it down to my sister, who's born 12 months after him, and then down to number uh, four and number five. And you can imagine, by the time it gets to the first person, it's all worn out. And that's the idea. It's something that's used and used and used over and over and over again until it loses its form and its function. Hitler moved to exterminate the Jews with little opposition. Right before World War II, he created what he called a final solution in order to exterminate the Jewish people. And in the end, one out of every three Jews that existed on the planet Earth was dead when the smoke cleared. Bible scholars seem to indicate in verse 21 that whoever this person is and the war that he's waging against the saints might be Antichrist's final attempt to exterminate the Jewish people once and for all. A.W. Cock writes, Next to the survival of the Jews, the most baffling historical phenomenon is the hatred which he has repeatedly encountered among the nations of the earth. This hostility to the Jew, which goes under the name of anti-Semitism, is as old as Jewish existence. It is endemic, like many contagious disease. It's always been with us to a degree, but under certain circumstances, it assumes epidemic proportions and characteristics. It's prevalent wherever Jews reside in sufficiently large numbers to make their neighbors aware of their presence. The growth of anti-Semitism, Chaim Weizmann declares, is proportionate to the number of Jews per square kilometer. We carry the germs of anti-Semitism in the knapsack of our backs, unquote. And throughout history, Satan has made a determined effort to exterminate the Jews. Satan has resorted to enslaving them in Exodus chapter 2, drowning them in Exodus 14, starving them in Exodus 16, tempting them in Exodus 32 and Numbers 14, cursing them in Numbers 23, capturing them in 2 Kings chapter 17, swallowing them in Jonah chapter 2, burning them in Daniel chapter 3, devouring them in Daniel chapter 6, hanging them in Esther chapter 3. But whether you enslave them, drown them, starve them, tempt them, curse them, capture them, swallow them, burn them, devour them, hang them, they hold on. You know what I believe? I believe we might be seeing an unfolding of a final generation. 
And you know what else I believe? That God has saved the best for last. Do you realize that there has never been a more wicked and perverse time and there has never been the extinction of a generation like this generation? I was thinking about this this morning when I was preparing my study. I was thinking about my life in 1972. In 1972, abortion was legal in the state of Colorado, but it wasn't legal in the state of California where I live. In 1972, even though abortion on demand was illegal, what kind of a world was it? It was a different world than the world in which we live. Do you realize that some 30 million people who are supposed to be here aren't here? And do you realize of that 30 million, 15 million of them are African Americans? Do you realize that Satan has targeted, I think, that which is precious, that which is pure, that which is noble, that which was intended to change the world? And America is killing its future. The Bible indicates that the worst persecution is yet to come. And in verse 22, a ray of hope. Until the Ancient of Days comes and a judgment is made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time come for the saints to possess the kingdom in a single sentence, Daniel sums up the end of a tribulation, the persecution of the saints and the arrival of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The war ends with the appearance of the Ancient of Days. And in the book of Revelation, we're told that the Antichrist wages war against the saints and he kills the 144,000 witnesses. But Jesus comes back. God himself intervenes. God himself intervenes in order to preserve a remnant unto himself. It says in Revelation 12, 14, And the woman was given the wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she's nourished for a time. Time. Half a time from the face of the serpent in Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. Why is that going to become important? Because remember, that expression in Revelation comes from this chapter in Daniel chapter 7. I believe that the Bible sees the coming of Jesus as a single event with two distinct parts. The first part is the Lord Jesus coming for his saints. The second part is Jesus coming with his saints. And so Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, I don't want you ignorant, my, my beloved brethren, about our family who have fallen asleep. He writes and he says that the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them. He uses a Greek word, hadapadzo. It means snatched away. Do you realize elsewhere in the Greek New Testament, it's, it's translated kidnapped. It means taken by force. And in verse 23, thus he said, 
the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. Now we know who the, the beast is. It is a kingdom. And again, listen carefully. Was Babylon a real historical kingdom? The answer is yes. Were the Medes and Persians a real historical kingdom with a geography and kings and a culture and a language? The answer is yes. Was Greece a real kingdom with rulers in a place, in geography? The answer is yes. Were, were the Romans a real kingdom? The answer is yes. So whatever this kingdom is, I'm going to submit to you that if the pattern of prophecy continues to fit the facts that whatever this kingdom is, it isn't a philosophical thing. It isn't a religious movement. It is a real kingdom. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms. In other words, there's going to be things that are the same, but there's going to be things that are going to be decidedly different. And the one thing that is going to be decidedly different, they shall devour the whole earth and trample it and break it into pieces. Did the Roman Empire conquer the whole world? No. Conquered the known world. It certainly devoured and broke that world into pieces. But whatever this kingdom is, it will quite literally be a global kingdom. And in verse 24 it says, The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise. Look carefully for yourself. The ten horns are ten kings which seem to represent sovereign nations which will arise from this single kingdom and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones. There's two words for another, both in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language. Another meaning the same and another meaning different. In the Greek language, there's hetero, and homo. Homo is the same. Hetero is different. This word is the word translated in the Septuagint, hetero. Different. Distinct from the first one. In other words, whoever this person is and whatever he is, he is a being unlike any other being that has ever come on the scene of human history. And he shall subdue three kings. In other words, when I told you earlier that the ancient empire collapsed in the 6th century, individual nation states emerge, but never a united empire. Those western nations have been remained divided even to this day. But the Bible seems to indicate that these nations that occupy both the Mediterranean rim and the European continent will not remain independent forever. And we've already seen a move towards the unification of that group. Do you realize that the European Union has a united, what, currency? They have a united, albeit not a very effective, government. In order to be a real power, do you know what the European needs? It needs not only a united currency, it needs not only a united form of governance, but it needs a united military. That's what the European Union doesn't have. 
My friend Joel Rosenberg just got back from Iraq and Afghanistan where he has spent the last 17 days. He's deeply, deeply concerned. He's deeply concerned because it looks like Iran is right on the verge of obtaining nuclear capability. Iran has already said that it wants to do what Hitler could not do. Exterminate the Jews. Exterminate them in a single moment. For the Iranian people, particularly for Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, it's his great desire that all of the Jews return to the land so he can kill them all at once. As you can imagine, the nation of Israel can't live under those circumstances. What would you do if someone put a gun to your head and threatened to kill everyone in your family? I have a great privilege of working with law enforcement officials. When you point a gun at an officer, you're pointing a gun at every officer. In the Federal Bureau of Investigation, if a special agent is threatened, everyone in the Bureau is threatened. When an American citizen is threatened, every American is threatened. And for the Jewish person, when the Jewish person is threatened, the whole nation is threatened. Is it possible that in as little time as it takes between now and the election that such a thing could happen? Some of the best minds in the country and in the world are deeply concerned about the upcoming election. They envision a presidency with Barack Obama or they envision a presidency with John McCain. In a presidency with Barack Obama or with a presidency with John McCain, no matter which person becomes president, Israel is at risk. And so the Israeli people have to make a decision. Do they eliminate Iran's nuclear capability before the election or after the election? What would you do if you were them? I suspect that that for many people, some of the wisest people in Israel are suggesting we can't wait till November 4th. So just sort of hold on to your seats because anything could happen. What does all this mean? Could a strike by Israel to Iran set in motion a series of events that change civilization as you and I understand it? Is it possible under those circumstances, if Iran is threatened, that Russia and Syria and North Africa and Libya associate and align with Iran and now Europe has to figure out a way to arm itself in order to protect itself? The whole world, as you understand it, could change in as little as two weeks. Will it? I don't know. But I do know this. Remember what I said to you earlier? No matter who's elected, and no matter what happens, the saints of God will inherit the kingdom. And by the way, at some future time, the nations will unite. Not just economically, and not just superficially politically, 
but militarily. A leader will emerge. He'll gain power, take control of three nations, rise to power. He will oppose God's authority. He will oppose the saints. He will introduce a new world order. He will abandon previous governmental models. He will create new laws. He will create a distinct institution. And so does this mean that global government will come first and then the Antichrist will arise out of the global government? Or will the Antichrist create the global government? Would you like to know the answer? The answer is, I have no idea. I genuinely don't know. So if you're wondering how to stump Gino, there's a question. Will the Antichrist create the mechanism of global governance? Or will he emerge out of the global governance? I'm going to suggest to you superficially, and this is not dogmatically, and I don't like to use supposition and speculation, but if I were to suppose and speculate, I'm going to suggest to you in that supposition and speculation that the world is going to turn, if you will, into regional areas of power. And in those regional areas of power, the Antichrist will emerge out of a relatively insignificant government. We're given a clue earlier on in chapter 7. Remember what we've already read in verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them a little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn with eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous things, the implication being that he overtakes, consolidates, his power, and then three of the countries collapse and the seven fold under the pressure. The Antichrist, the leader, will conquer the nations. The seven nations will submit to him voluntarily and they will join him in his blasphemy and they will join him in his dream. And you know what his dream is? A world without God world without restraints, a world without prohibitions. So remember, the Antichrist isn't simply a leader who comes on at the end of days. An Antichrist is any person, any government, any institution that stands in opposition to the plan of God and the things of God and salvation that's found in Christ Jesus. And so the dream of the Antichrist is a world apart from God, a world where man is God. The Bible seems to say that the Antichrist will come from obscure beginnings. Remember, at age 22, Alexander the Great was only a petty prince. He was the king of Macedon, and in four years he ruled the world. Napoleon Bonaparte was born on August 15th in 1769 at Ahisikyo, Corsica. When he was born... Corsica had just been won to France by arms. Had he been born only two months earlier, he would have been an Italian person. Ulysses S. Grant 
would not have been a military man. He would have not led the northern armies. He would have not become president of the United States. But do you realize that as a young man, when he was applying to West Point as a cadet, he was the last person picked. He beat out one person who had six toes on each foot instead of five. In a book published in 1933, Dorothy Thompson related it took her just 50 seconds after meeting Adolf Hitler to, 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 to decide that that formless, almost faceless man would never become the dictator of Germany. Boy, was she wrong. The Antichrist will be a clever leader, an occultic leader. Verse 25, he will speak pompous words against the Most High. He will persecute the saints of the Most High. He will intend to change times and law. And the saints shall be given into his hand for a time. Times. Half a time. The pompous words that he speaks is the blasphemies against God. He persecutes the saints and he changes time and laws. Do you realize that almost every world leader has done exactly that? Changed the Babylonian calendar, changing the Medo Persian calendar, changing the Greek calendar, changing the Roman calendar. Do you realize that the calendar that you and I use was established by Julius Caesar? You know why the month July is July? It's named after Julius, and August is named after Augustus. Almost every world leader who's elevated himself has established a new calendar. The Antichrist speaks. He has the mouth of a lion, a ferocious roar that's heard around the world. He is Mr. Bombastic with a blasphemous tent. He is Ro, Ro, Roman, not romantic. He's called the man of lawlessness. He's energized by Satan. He'll have power over believers for time, times, half a time. Scholars suggest that this means year, years, half a year. That's a period of three and a half years. Daniel tells his readers later in chapter 11, verse 36, the king shall do according to his will and he shall exalt himself above every God. He shall speak things against the God of gods for a period of three and a half years. He will be unhindered in all that he desires to do. Just a little under a presidential term. The New Testament writer says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4 and 9, He is the man of sin who opposes and exalts himself above God and his worship so that he sits in the temple as God, showing himself that he is God. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with signs. And lying wonders. He has access to supernatural. He changes the laws. He does great things. He will be cruel. 
He will be the most powerful, the most perverted, the most vile, the most vicious human being. He will be an intellectual genius, a master statesman, a political, commercial, financial genius. J. Vernon McGee many, many years ago wrote, He will achieve the goal of present-day religionists. One religion for the whole world. Have you noticed today the tremendous move to bring together the religions of the world? A startling comment comes from a Jewish rabbi. Whether Messiah is a person or an assembly is of minor importance, says Chief Rabbi Marcus Melchior of Denmark. I believe Messianic times would come if the United Nations were made the Messiah. If this rabbi is willing to accept the UN as Messiah, do you think he would not recognize as Messiah a man who is able to do what the UN apparently has never been able to do? Put Europe back together and bring about world peace? Question. Is the world set for a world leader? I think so. In the past, great leaders have emerged out of difficult times. Do you remember what happened immediately after World War I? The Germans experienced a financial collapse. German finances became hyperinflated. In 1919, a German mark was worth 25 cents. Four years later, it declined in value till four trillion marks was needed to equal one American dollar. The German middle class lost their savings. The value of their pensions were wiped out overnight. Security was gone. And the people were listening to a voice that cried out for change. They wanted someone who would listen to their anger and their bitterness. Enter Adolf Hitler. It was Lenin who said, The surest way to overthrow an existing social order is to collapse the currency. So, but the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. Even if you see the entire collapse of the planet Earth, guess what the Bible promises? A world that rejects Christ will one day accept Christ. This is why as Christians it's important for you not to look for the Antichrist, but to Jesus Christ. And you know what is the best source of security in your life? To be found in Him. Holy. Blameless. Above reproach. It says, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts troubled me. My countenance changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. Daniel explains that this is the end of the revelation. The revelation troubled him, changed him. 
but he thought about it a lot. The predictions concerning the kingdoms of Daniel, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, came to pass exactly as prophesied. We have every reason again to believe that the final kingdom will also come to pass exactly as the Bible predicts. The nations and the kingdoms will be established by God. He's in control. He's in control of this nation and this continent and this world. The God who allowed the unfolding of the past will allow the unfolding of the present. And it may seem hard. It may seem uncertain. But remember what Daniel has said. Then the kingdom and dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High God. Make no mistake about it. Christian you will inherit the kingdom. God's preparing a kingdom. The Antichrist will have the leadership skills of a Washington and Lincoln, the eloquence of a Franklin Roosevelt, the charm of a Teddy Roosevelt, the charisma of a Kennedy, the popularity of an Ike, the political savvy of a Johnson, the intellectual capacity of a Jefferson, That pretty much leaves out David Hasselhoff. Who will he be? He will come from obscure beginnings. He will make a peace treaty with the Jews that will last seven years. He will overcome some resistance in uniting Europe. He will become the head of a ten-nation European confederacy. He will be attacked by kings in the north and the south. He will experience what looks like a mortal wound. That wound will be healed. He will become a world ruler. He will change time, seasons, law, religion. He will break the treaty with Israel. He will stop the temple sacrifice. He will kill the two witnesses at the end of time. He will disrupt and disturb worship. He will kill the Jews. He will persecute the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. He will destroy the world church. He'll be defeated at Armageddon and he'll be cast alive into the lake of fire. And you'll see it. Now or later. Next week, chapter 8. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the Word of God. Lord, we know that we look not for the coming of Antichrist, but the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we prepare ourselves to see our Savior. And Lord, we're reminded of what John said. Everyone who has this hope in his heart purifies himself. And for the person who's frightened and disturbed, 
for the person who lives in constant fear and anxiety over what the future holds, Lord, I pray that they would place themselves firmly, squarely, completely, and specifically into the hands of Jesus. Knowing that where Jesus is, you will be. Knowing that where Jesus is in the future, you will be. And so, Lord, I pray for that person, fearful, troubled, consumed. Lord, I pray that they would not be so consumed about prophecy as to ignore promise. The promise that Jesus Christ is both Lord and King forever and ever.